Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you've just watched Squid Games, you're feeling a bit stressed, and you've thought some light-hearted medical education was just the ticket. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners. Before we start, huge shout out to HEE and St George's NHS Trust, who have generously given us a grant to continue and improve journal spotting. They're not journal junkies. We have not sold out. The only thing to change for you guys will be improved sound quality, check, even awesomer episodes, check, happier podcasters, and the occasional clinking of moe in the background. <laughs> moe? That looks more like uh, PG tips to me. And in a, is that a journal spotting mug? Alvin, don't spoil the illusion. <laughs> and anyway, it's a masala chai. But anyway, um, we are back with a fantastic selection of medical articles to wet your ears and perk up your appetites. I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, but who have I got with me today? Jonathan Hudson, perhaps? John? 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 John! 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 Ah, nah, he's not seeing me. I'll get him later. John! Fine, fine. Barney, I think John might have a few other things going on. Having just got married and all. And besides, I'm not sure if our international listeners will get your Alan Partridge reference there. (laughs) You may be right, you may be right. I apologise, listeners. Um, Biggest take-home of this episode, though, already, if you don't know Alan Partridge, go and Google it. As far as John, I'm afraid, listeners, you will have to wait to find out how John and Katia's wedding of the century went down. But fear not, as you may have figured out, tonight we have pulled out the super subs, the big guns, the journal spotting beavers of the year, Dr. Alvin Schrester and Dr. Cammy Hirons. Alvin and Cammy, how have you been? Hi, guys. I'm Dr. Alvin Schrester. I'm a geriatrics trainee in southwest London. And I'm finally crossing our beloved River Thames to do mm. some sarcopenia research in northwest London. Very nice. Oh, fascinating, Alvin. How's it going? Well, it's uh, week two so far. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm having to read about one million journals, it feels like. so. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> mate, we told you it's a gateway drug. Once you get into uh, journal spotting, that's it. You uh, you can't turn back. I'm, I'm in research now that's as well. Right. Yeah. My name's Dr. Cammy Hirons. I'm a GP in South East London. I've also taken up something a bit different. So I'm doing a digital first fellowship, which is quite exciting for me. And I can't tell you much about it as I've only just started. <laughs> Does that mean you're going to answer all my computer and technology questions from now on? Yeah, I was worried you might say that. We'll, we'll say yes. Yeah, oh, good, and, good. you know, I managed to turn Microsoft Teams on today, so that is good. That is good. pretty good. Um, why are you shaking your head as you're saying yes? That's, that's <laughs> not a real yes. Any, anyway, brilliant, guys. Well, look, great to have you back on the show, both of you, um, and looking forward to tonight's episode. So um, which one of you guys are going to tell us, tell the audience, what we have in store for them tonight? Right, so tonight's going to be action-packed. We've got what oxygen to use in covid and there's no surprises uh, who's going to be covering that one, our <laughs> respiratory uh, in-house physician. Can booze prevent diabetes? 
Should you jog in the smog? <laughs> Statins in the elderly to stop or start? Can we blame metabolism for our middle-aged beer bellies? Is monitoring for atrial fibrillation actually helpful? TV DVTs, doctors in fleeces, and even more. Brilliant. Thanks, Alvin. That is a an awesome amount of stuff to cover. Great. A reminder to everyone, click subscribe, follow us on social media, and go on, rate us on Apple. The more five stars we get, the better guests we can coax into our journal spotting lair, and you then benefit from hearing their informative voices. Oh, and if you want to send congratulations to John and Katia, email them on journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet them at journalspotting. Best ones will get a mention on the next show and there will be prizes. Cammy, <laughs> very exciting. Uh, let's crack on. And mind if I kick off proceedings with a, a really quite important COVID update? Uh, do, do we have a choice? I uh, know you don't <laughs> no, have no, a choice. No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Right. I'm covering the Recovery RS or Respiratory Support Trial. Like the awesome recovery trials that gave us COVID treatments, including dexamethasone and tocilizumab, this was looking at which oxygen treatment modality we should be using. Conventional oxygen, like face masks, high-flow nasal cannula, often known as OptiFlow, or CPAP. Now, just in case you haven't been in a hospital ward over the pandemic, high-flow nasal cannula is when you blast humidified air up people's noses. You can give up to 100% oxygen at a maximum flow of 60 litres per minute. And very roughly, for every 10 litres of flow, you get about one centimetre of water of positive end-expiratory pressure. CPAP, as I'm sure you know, is a tight mask over the face which provides air at a constant pressure, around 10 centimetres of water, and you can attach up to 30 litres of oxygen to the mask straight from the wall. To the study. This was an adaptive design, and they included everyone admitted with COVID pneumonia, suitable for full escalation of care, and requiring 40% oxygen to maintain saturations on 94 and above. Their primary outcome was a composite of risk of intubation or mortality at 30 days. Participants were split one to one to one. The interventions, CPAP and high-flow nasal cannula were started and titrated as per the tre treating hospital guidelines or clinicians. They collected about 1,300 patients over 48 UK hospitals. The primary outcome of badness occurred in 36% using CPAP versus 44% with conventional oxygen. So a big win for CPAP. But it occurred in 44% of the high-flow nasal cannula group versus 45% of the compared conventional oxygen group. So there was no difference there. The number needed to treat to avoid the primary outcome of intubational death with CPAP was 12. Wow, that sounds really impressive, Barney. So just to recap, it sounds like what you're saying is that CPAP reduces the risk of intubation and death in COVID. I am indeed. But? Uh, there's always a but. There is. <laughs> The reduction seen in the CPAP group was due to reduced intubation, but it did not show a reduction in mortality compared to other groups. To be fair, it wasn't powered to find this, but it is a key limitation to these results. Also, they were more likely to have safety issues with CPAP, such as a higher rate of hemodynamic instability and a couple of pneumothoraces. Hmm, so what oxygen therapy should we be using, Barney? And do you think this is going to change your practice? Well, well, yes and no. I mean, it really does seem like that overall there is benefit of CPAP over other modalities in these patients. But it is not absolute 
and may not make a huge difference to the ultimate outcome. Equally, some patients just can't tolerate CPAP. And so for many, finding the modality which keeps the saturations in the right range for as long as possible, whilst the drugs kick in and the inflammation settles, I mean, that's fine. However, if a patient is needing a high flow of oxygen and is able to tolerate CPAP, I am now more likely to suggest it. And by the way, listeners, the authors of this study have agreed for an exclusive interview with Journal Spotting once the paper has been officially published. So watch out for that. Mm, indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Barney, thanks for covering that. That was great. And it sounds like it's another win for the Recovery Collaborative Group. Yeah. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to hearing the authors in this exclusive interview. Can't wait. <laughs> I must say, I'm not sure how exclusive it is, but still, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Right, I'm going to steer us away from COVID and uh, go on to one of our journal spotting favourites, and that's atrial fibrillation. So as we all know, atrial fibrillation is a big risk factor for ischemic stroke. It's thought that maybe one in five ischemic strokes are caused by AF. So finding it's pretty important because we can then start anticoagulation and hopefully reduce the risk of future strokes. There remains many questions about screening for AF, though, like who should we screen and how far do we push it? 24-hour tapes, seven-day halters, or even implantable loop recorders. The first study I'm going to explore is implantable loop recorder detection of AF to prevent stroke, the loop study published in The Lancet in August. This was a randomized control trial of older adults aged 70 to 90, and participants had to have one of high blood pressure, diabetes, previous stroke or heart failure. So we're already looking at a high risk category then. So their Chad Vask score would probably be at least two. Yeah, that's right. So these are high risk for future stroke and would merit anticoagulation if we found AF. They had 1,500 participants that were randomised into the implantable loop recorder or ILR group and 4,500 into the usual care control group. The ILR group was monitored for a median of 39 months for new AF, and if found for more than six minutes, oral anticoagulation was recommended. They found, unsurprisingly, lots more AF was detected in the ILR group at 32% versus 12% in the control. And this led to more anticoagulation being started in the ILR group at 30% versus 13% in the control. Great. So ILR had more AF detected, which meant more anticoagulation was started. And this is exactly what we want. But did it actually improve patient outcome? There was no difference in the primary outcome of stroke or systemic arterial emboli with a hazard ratio of 0 0.80, but pretty wide confidence intervals from 0.61 to 1.05. There was also no difference in all-cause mortality with a hazard ratio of bang on 1.00. And actually, thankfully, there was also no difference in bleeding or intracranial hemorrhage between the groups. Now, before we completely abandon the idea of a screening programme, let me complicate things further by talking about a second paper I found, which by stroke of coincidence Very nice. was, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> was also released in the Lancet in the same issue and this is clinical outcomes in systematic screening for AF stroke stop. In this Swedish study they invited 75 and 76 year olds 
and ended up randomizing about 14,000 people into the screening intervention arm and another 14,000 into the control. The screening intervention itself was for participants to use a handheld single lead ECG twice a day for two weeks. It's worth noting that in this intervention arm, only 51% actually accepted the screening intervention, but they still used the other remaining 49% as part of an intention to treat analysis. The primary outcome was ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, systemic emboli, bleeding requiring hospitalization and all-cause mortality. The authors declared that the screening did reduce this endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.96 and a p-value of 0.045, so it was just borderline positive. Now, when you take away the sort of intention to treat bits and only look at the 51% of participants who actually accepted the screening and compare them to the control, then the reduction in primary outcome looks even more impressive with a hazard ratio of 0.76. Interesting. So Alvin, these studies seem a little contradictory. What do you think is going on? I think the key is the screening itself, which is very different in both studies. In the first study, the LOOP study, participants were monitored continuously for years. And uh, compare that to the second study, Stroke Stop, where participants only had intermittent ECGs for just two weeks. So there might be a suggestion here that the the ILR machines itself were too sensitive in picking up AF and was detecting perhaps clinically less relevant AF with a low burden. And if you compare that with stroke stops intermittent ECGs, the AF burden must have been higher to have been able to be detected in such a small window. So there might be an overall conclusion here that perhaps not all AF is the same and that the burden of AF is also quite important. Yeah, that's really interesting, Alvin, I think. And really relevant with all these uh, smartwatches and everything, which is which are monitoring yeah, people all over the place and, uh, and probably will, you know, over-diagnose a low burden of AF. And then luckily in that first study, there wasn't much in the way of bleeding or risk of bleeding. But yeah. you've got to think, if you're starting all these people on anticoagulants, uh, yeah, you're going to have some disasters if they don't, and you know, impeachments who wouldn't otherwise have benefited. So it's so really interesting. Thank you. Um, should, we, should we move over to Cami to talk more about how metabolism, which is something which we haven't really covered in journal spotting before? I would love to. So we have all seen patients, whether they be also family and friends, who blame a slow metabolism for the increasing waistline, normally as we're nearing middle age. But have we actually stopped to look at the evidence behind this? Well, this study not only looked at the total daily energy expenditure, but they tracked its trajectory over the lifespan of its participants. They analysed over 6,400 subjects, of which 64% were female and 36 male, from 29 countries. And they ranged in age from just eight days old to 95 years old. So total expenditure was measured by the doubly labelled water method. This is basically where the person ingests water made up of heavier than usual atoms. You can then track how much of this is passed out as carbon dioxide and water, and then you can work out their energy expenditure. Right. Sounds a bit, um, I don't know, science fiction-y, doubly labelled water. I mean, I have no idea how it works, <laughs> but it's a well-known and validated method. All right, we'll let them off. <laughs> and the bigger the body, whether that be ripped muscle or a father Christmas belly, the more energy it will take to run. 
So researchers did tweak their measurements and that was adjusting for body size. Okay. So they had some really interesting findings and they were able to categorise people based on their energy expenditure into four different stages. So if we start with stage one, the neonate. So expenditure rises rapidly in neonates to 50% above adults. And that's not too surprising. I hear you say all that growing and developing in the wee babies. So basically, it's downhill from here. And then we have stage two, which they call juveniles. This showed a slow decline from here to adult levels by age 20. Interestingly, there was no pubertal increases. Males had a higher total expenditure and adjusted total expenditure, but sex had no detectable effect on the rate of decline with age. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's amazing so far, isn't it? I mean, it seems strange to think, first of all, as you know, those rampaging four-year-olds, which we are seeing regularly, um, as having all waning metabolisms yeah and also that there was no increase in puberty and just thinking back how to how much I used to eat and everyone always said it was because of my metabolism yeah so, uh, it's fascinating okay exactly yeah and then we have stage three where we plateau this is the adult stage so our energy expenditure remains stable here and that's from age 20 to 60 so even during pregnancy and menopause our expenditure is the same and then finally, we have stage four, the older adult, where it's seen that our energy expenditure will decline from the age of 60. And for subjects that were over 90, adjusted total expenditure was around 26% lower than middle-aged adults. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks, Cammy. You must get quite a few patients coming to the GP with weight gain or, you know, difficulty sort of losing weight. Can this information change your practice? Maybe not so much in how I practice medicine day to day, but I think these changes in energy expenditure do help shed light on, on human development and ageing and, and could it help shape nutrition and health strategies across a lifespan rather than having one size fits all approach. Weight gain is such a multifactorial problem, but at least we can tell people it's not because of their metabolism slowing, which might help put the impetus back on the patient well, and us to help fix it. I mean, could it also help reveal whether cancer spread differently as the metabolism changes or, or if drugs um, should be adjusted during different stages of life? I'll end at this study with a quote from Dr. Brage from the University of Cambridge. We urgently need to turn our attention not only to the global energy crisis defined by the burning of fossil fuels, but also the energy crisis that is caused by not burning enough calories in our own bodies. Oh, nice, Cammy. That's a good quote. I like a good quote. <laughs> I mean, and also it prompts me to remind people of our Climate Zone series, which will tell you as healthcare professionals what you need to know about climate change. You're welcome for the segue. Thank you. Thank you. But I digress. Let's get back to um, Alvin, I think, who has more about medications in the elderly. Yeah, so let's uh, start with a typical case. We've got Fatina Blood, who's a, an 86-year-old. Sorry, wait, Alvin, was that fat in her blood? Fatina Blood. You, you know it was, Varney. <laughs> you, you gave me this name. <laughs> um, yeah, so Fatina uh, is on a bunch of medications, including Ramapril, Aspirin, Metformin, Anastatin. She's been taking these for years and she asks her GP if she can stop any as she's too old to benefit and she doesn't like popping pills like she used to in the 60s. <laughs> Are there any you would consider stopping for her? 
Right, let me answer this because deprescribing is such a hot topic in primary care. I think I would have a chat with the patient and explain risk and benefit of taking. But if she was keen to reduce pill burden, I think statin would definitely be one of the first meds to go. Thank you for that model answer, Cami. Very good. Um, yeah, it's uh, obviously about risk benefit. And uh, with regards to the statin, let's see if this next paper that I'm going to describe might be able to help us. So this is cardiovascular outcomes and mortality associated with discontinuing statins in older patients receiving polypharmacy in JAMA. This was a retrospective cohort study of Italian adults above the age of 65 who were receiving polypharmacy with an antilipid, an antihypertensive, antidiabetic and an antiplatelet. They looked at tens of thousands of patients' data and eventually had about 4,000 individuals who had continuous statin therapy and the propensity score matched these to about 4,000 patients who discontinued statins but continued the other medications. The mean age was 76 years and about 19% had ischemic heart disease and 8% had cerebrovascular disease, just so you get a flavour of the comorbidity. Patients were followed up for a mean length of time of 10 months. And in that short time period, they showed that compared to staying on statins, discontinuing them was associated with an increased risk of the following. That was hospitalisation with heart failure of 24%, composite cardiovascular outcome of 14%, emergency department attendance of 12%, and all-cause mortality of 15%. Now, with my geriatrics hat on, what I will say is that one of the reasons why uh, we might stop statins in the older adult, other than side effects, is that if we think, you know, there is such severe frailty that patients are unlikely to see its benefit. And unfortunately, in this study, um, they didn't measure frailty. And so we don't quite know just how robust or frail these patients are. But despite that, I think this is still a great study. And it will certainly make me think twice about discontinuing statins in older people. Oh, great, Alvin. Thanks. I think I was always under the impression statins only provided benefits in a fairly distant future. So really interesting to hear that, you know, even within one year, there's such worse outcomes. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Now, now I'm going to take us through a couple of articles with a, a running theme of getting people off their asses and exercising. A question which often gets flagged is, what about air pollution? Should that stop us going outside and exercising? So, breathing in air pollution is bad. More than 91% of the world's population live in areas of pollution higher than WHO guidelines, and it's thought to have killed about 4.9 million people in 2017, which is pretty um, crappy. Listen to episode 31 with the Frank Kelly to get an excellent overview of this. On the other hand, exercise is good. Listen to about 80% of our episodes where we mention this. In fact, Physical inactivity was thought to account for 5.3 million deaths in 2012, which is actually even more awful than air pollution. But when you exercise, you tend to breathe more. Thank you, Dr. Respiratory Specialist. All right. <laughs> and if the only place you have to exercise is a polluted city, should you venture outside for a jog in the smog or sit back on the sofa and watch another episode of Sex Education? This CMAJ article the effects of air pollution and habitual exercise on the risk of death, attempts to answer this. 
384,000 people in Taiwan were prospectively followed up with questionnaires and death registry data between 2001 and 2019. For pollution, they concentrated on levels of PM2.5, which are these tiny particulate matter which can pass through the lungs and into the bloodstream. I'm a bit concerned that the results are going to mean I have to call back all those patients I told to go jogging in inner city London, Barney. Oh, yeah, well, let's see, Cammy. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> As you might imagine, the higher the PM2.5 level exposure, the higher the mortality, with those in the top bracket having an increased risk of death 15% higher than the lowest bracket. Not good news, but this fits with what we know. Also not surprising was that across the board, a higher level of habitual exercise was associated with a lower risk of death with a hazard ratio of 0.84, so you were 16% less likely to die. Unsurprisingly, the most active people in the least polluted areas had the greatest survival benefits. But what is key from this study and complements what many other studies have suggested, compared to inactivity, doing moderate or high levels of activity was still associated with a lower hazard ratio of death despite the level of PM2.5. Okay, phew. So we can continue to tell people to exercise and ignore the wonderful aroma of diesel. <laughs> yes, exactly right. It's not groundbreaking, but this should alleviate any fears that exercising in polluted areas is more dangerous than not exercising. So get on your bikes. Ooh, is that a segue into your next article, Varney? Ah, oh, well, it would not be a roundup without me promoting cycling somehow, would it? Mm. So... Ladies and gentlemen, we all know what we should do by now, that cycling reduces all-cause mortality and nastinesses like cancer and cardiovascular disease. But it is also associated with a small increased risk of trauma. Can I just say, uh, you know, nastinesses? Nastinesses. Are we just going to let that lie? We're going to let that lie. Okay, I guess. It's a new word. People don't write it down. Our internationally poor it's listeners are going to think that's real. Nastinesses. It's in the dictionary. It's in journal spotting. It must be true. Continue. However, this relationship has not been studied in diabetes specifically. Until now, the authors of this JAMA article prospectively gathered 7,500 adults and followed up about two-thirds of them five years later. The authors looked at lots of factors, but cycling was key. They ranked the participants in terms of how many hours they cycled a week, uh, then categorised them as either not cycling at either visit, cycling at baseline but then stopping at the five-year visit, or they were not cycling, then started by five years. Uh, Barney, I, I think I know where this is going. I mean, you've already told us to get on your bikes. Get on your bikes, people! And tell your diabetic patients to do so even more importantly. So, adjusting for confounders and independent of other physical activity, at baseline, the hazard ratio for all cause mortality for those cycling up to 60 minutes a week was 0.78. This went down in a linear fashion to 0.68 when cycling between 150 and 300 minutes per week. But interestingly, this actually then trended back up to about 0.78 if they cycled over 300 minutes. Then, compared to those who never cycled, the hazard ratio of all-cause mortality for those who cycled at first visit but had stopped by second was 0.9, which wasn't statistically significant. But those that cycled at both visits and those who didn't cycle but started cycling at the five years had the hazard ratio of death of 0.65 compared to never cyclists. Oh, that was a lot of uh, hazard ratios there, Barney. Um, which one's your favourite? <laughs> yeah, that, that's totally fair. Um, look, my favourite stat from this is that it seems even if you have never cycled 
and you get started, you can massively reduce your cardiovascular risk. And that is probably or possibly just as good as if you had always cycled. Also, you don't have to cycle a huge amount. Somewhere between one and three hours a week seems to be the sweet spot for these patients. And so we should be recommending it to all our diabetic patients who are able. So it sounds like what you're saying is it's never too late to start cycling. That's great news and definitely something to relate to patients. Never too late, even in a polluted city. Okay, got it. (laughs) Well, I'll continue on the diabetes theme then, but in a slightly different cohort of patients. Gestational diabetes. As if being pregnant isn't hard enough, but then you have to add diabetes into the mix. These unfortunate women have more than a sevenfold increased risk of later developing type 2 diabetes compared with women without gestational diabetes. So the role of modifiable risk factors in delaying or preventing progression from gestational diabetes to type 2 diabetes is of particular interest. So this study, published in JAMA, set out to evaluate the association between alcohol consumption and the long-term risk of type 2 diabetes in women with a history of gestational diabetes. So they studied over 4,700 women and they came from the Nurses Health Study 2 cohort trial. And these women all had gestational diabetes. They were assessed every four years using a validated food frequency questionnaire and they were followed up from 1991 to 2017. This is totaling in over 78,000 person years of follow-up. So it's a lot of follow-up. During this period, there were 897 incident cases of type 2 diabetes reported. Around 18.9% of women with gestational diabetes went on to develop type 2. So after adjustment for major dietary and lifestyle factors, it was found that alcohol consumption of 5 to 14.9 grams a day, that's just under 1 to 2 units a day, was associated with decreased risk of incidence for type 2 diabetes. After additional adjustment for BMI, women who reported alcohol consumption of 5 to 14.9 grams per day had a 41% lower risk for developing incidence of type 2 diabetes, with a hazard ratio of 0.59. Wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. Um, First question, was there any sort of dose relationship? I mean... What happened to the women who drank more or less? Indeed. So both lower and higher rates of alcohol consumption were not found to be associated with the risk of type 2 diabetes. Okay, so it has to be in that range. And another question, did it matter what type of alcohol they drank? I I mean, because I know there's some evidence that red wine can be beneficial long term for health. Um, But what about other things? Well, Barney, I'm afraid they didn't specifically mention home-brewed craft Belgian beer. (laughs) That is a shame. That is a shame. <laughs> but but saying that, both beer and wine were shown to be beneficial. Although, interestingly, liquor was not. Okay. So did they uh, offer any ideas as to why alcohol might reduce the risk of diabetes, coming? Well, yeah. Hendricks hypothesised that light to moderate alcohol consumption could improve glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity. And this was through modulation of adipokines, which are cytokines released by adipose tissue, and also reduce systemic inflammation. Do you think it might change practice? Well, I'm currently sat with a glass of wine just to prevent myself getting <laughs> diabetes. But of course, these findings should be interpreted in the context of other known risks and benefits of alcohol consumption when considering clinical recommendations for these women. But it is information which could be shared with women who have gestational diabetes, and then they can make an informed choice about their lifestyle habits. Yeah, well said, Camille. That's good. Um, so I'm going to go and drink some more beer, then have a nap. And 
on the topic of sleep. Alvin, want to tell us more about uh, what the lack of sleep might do to us? Right. So as a bit of an insomniac, this next study caught my eye. And this is association of poor sleep burden in middle age and older adults with risk of delirium during hospitalisation, published in the Journals of Gerontology in September. This was a prospective observational study looking at whether poor sleep health, for example, erratic duration, excessive daytime sleepiness and insomnia was associated with delirium. The recruitment started back in 2006 and they followed up patients for 12 years. Uh, I think they had about over 300,000 participants, so pretty big study. The participants responded to a questionnaire about sleep health, which then led to each individual having a, a poor sleep burden score. When they categorised this score into a baseline mild, moderate and severe poor sleep burden, they found a dose-response incremental incidence of delirium. And what's more, they did a subgroup analysis that demonstrated a U-shaped association of delirium with duration of sleep such that seven-hour sleep was the optimum amount where the delirium risk did not increase. So anything majorly either side, for example, less than six hours or even, for example, greater than nine hours, you are actually at increased risk of delirium. So there might actually be a thing as sleeping too much. And uh, Barney, we really need to get off this med reg rotor. I think that's the conclusion. <laughs> that is your conclusion. That's brilliant, which we actually both have, Alvin, now. We are that. So hopefully we'll get some better sleep and you know, reduce our risk of delirium. <laughs> Alvin, what's really interesting about this is that it seems to tie nicely with your previous articles, which have shown an increased risk of dementia the less you sleep. I think we covered this in the previous journal spotting roundup. Barney? Yeah, I think it was uh, episode 34, I believe, just off the top of my head. But the fact that too much sleep is also causal makes it more complicated than that. Yeah. Can, can it change practice, Alvin? Will you prescribe, I don't know, more melatonin or um, more <laughs> subscriptions to Headspace? What would you do? Yeah, I, I do like melatonin. But I think, uh, yeah, even just promoting, you know, just basic good sleep hygiene um, might make a difference here. All right, I'm going to take, uh, take the reins for a short one from me. And I've kept to a, a similar theme of activity this um, this episode. So a trial published in the Journal of Hemostasis and Thrombosis looked at VTE risk and TV watching. We know immobility can increase the risk of VTE or venous thromboembolism. Post-surgery is a classic example. Flights over four hours, illness making you bed bound, etc. But what about watching too much TV? Interestingly, Two previous large cohort studies appear to have shown that there is an increased risk with longer TV watching. Whilst only published in the last few years, these use patient data from way back in the 1980s to the 1990s. This study started collecting data on lifestyle and VTE risk in the US from 2003, and they recruited some 30,000 patients over the age of 45. TV watching was classified as light, which is less than two hours, moderate, two to four hours, or heavy, more than four hours. Right, so Barney, should our listeners who are probably currently binging for hours on Squid Games, uh, should they be worried? Ha! Well, Alvin, your Squid Gamers can be rest assured that in this study, there was no association with VT and TV watching, so binge away. Also, Alvin, what the hell is Squid Games? <laughs> um, basically, Koreans play some children games to win a lot of money. 
Wow, cool. that sounds amazing. In a, in a <laughs> it's going to be next on the list. <laughs> um, right, so back to the study. Uh, why do you think um, this was different compared to the previous studies? Well, I think a key difference was that this cohort had double the amount of obese patients, 36% compared to 18% in the older studies. So major confounding factors may be playing a more, po- more important role than the amount of TV being watched, which is, could skew the numbers. Equally, back in the 1980s, the neon spandex and shoulder pads could have been confounders, but also TV watching habits might have been very different to how people watch TV now often on the move with smartphones and rarely completely inactive for multiple hours. So the jury is out. If there is a link between TV and DVT, it's weak. And if you keep getting up for wheeze and cups of teas, then more wheeze, hopefully not too many cups of wheeze, you probably don't have to worry too much about those lazy Sunday square-eyed afternoons. Right, Cami, want to finish us off with a relatively relevant, irrelevant article about doctor's fashion? Absolutely, Barney, thank you. I had another look at an article from JAMA um, called Public Perceptions of Physician Attire and Professionalism in the US. I think I should start with the first sentence from the abstract. In recent years, casual physician attire, in brackets, fleece jackets and soft shell jackets, close brackets, (laughs) has become increasingly popular, but to our knowledge, public perception of these garments has not been studied. (laughs) Okay, hands up. Who's been wearing fleeces and soft shell jackets to work? (laughs) I'm looking at you, Barney. Not me, not um, me. I would, I would absolutely love to wear a fleece with a soft shell jacket. I don't think I've ever seen a doctor in the UK, anyway, wearing a fleece or a soft shell jacket. To be fair, most of work. us are stuck in scrubs these days. Eh? Well, that's true. That's true. But even before that, okay. The, fle- the fleece has got a very like a you know consultant working at the weekend vibe, hasn't it? That's like true. a okay. It's all these cyclists. that's the uk vibe i think anyway (laughs) i'm disappointed that both of you are not wearing these because the medical equivalent of vogue is telling me that they are very a la mode currently (laughs) well the authors surveyed nearly 500 patients and they used photos of female and male models wearing different clothing oh please tell me they had some example photos i i I would just love to see the the range of attire they were sort of they were using and and the models they were using I suppose yeah in, I'd be interested to see the race of the models oh well. interesting I don't yeah know. yeah if that played a part they yeah. haven't mentioned it they haven't mentioned <laughs> oh, it wow. disappointingly I don't have the photos ah. anyway the patients rated them for professionalism experience friendliness based on photos physicians wearing white coats were perceived significantly more experienced professional and friendly compared with those wearing fleece or soft shell jackets. The female models were rated as appearing less professional than the male models and were most likely to be mistaken as a medical technician, physician assistant or nurse. Ouch. Ouch, but predictable, having been referred to as a nurse for most of my career by many patients. I mean, important to remind people that this is a US study, but it is interesting to hear about the ongoing preferences for white coats and unsurprising yet disappointing to hear the same old things that patients often perceive women to be more junior, less experienced or lower down in the medical hierarchy than our male peers. We must never forget we have unconscious bias. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it? And and. It seems like a cliche and it seems very ignorant to say, but you, you sort of think that nowadays that wouldn't be such an issue, but obviously it still is. No, definitely still is, yeah. Right. Well, there we have it, folks. A, a huge amount of info to digest and take away. And as always, 
thank you to my fantastic team, Cammy and Alvin, for your brilliant journal beavering, <laughs> whatever that is. Ha- thank you for having us. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of our favourite take-home points um, from what we've discussed. So, uh, who wants to go first? I thought that there were lots of interesting articles today, um, but I really liked the sleep and delirium article. And it really helps to just take home the message that sleep hygiene is really important. And, you know, being able to try and give a number and a value of the hours of sleep to my patients. So it's really good. Yeah, I think actually giving an hour, that is really helpful. When I did sleep clinic, just telling people a rough hour they should be aiming for was really opened their eyes. Mm-hmm. and actually had to give them something to target as well, yeah. um, which I think is really helpful. What about you, Alvin? I'm going to actually go for your jog in the smog (laughs) article (laughs) not just because of the rhyme but um it's actually uh something i have wondered as i you know walk and cycle through uh london behind uh inordinate amounts of traffic inhaling all that carbon dioxide so uh, it's good to know that actually um exercising through it will hopefully still provide some benefit yeah yeah good and I mean, I, I, I wear one of these these masks when I cycle just to try and reduce that risk even more. Although, you know, there isn't much evidence behind those at the moment. So but we'll wait and see if that comes. Yeah, you can imagine. It, I'll, I'll tell you about it if it does. Um, <laughs> for me, there's a couple of things here. I'm trying to think of what would change my practice. And um, the respiratory RS probably is changing my practice already. But I think the statins article in particular could well change my my sort of practice down the line or certainly make me think twice if I was ever but often the question comes up in hospital or elsewhere oh should we stop the statin because well they're old and a bit frail but actually knowing that over the next year they're going to have quite a lot of nasty outcomes if you do I thought was really helpful and I really found found it fascinating the idea that a small amount of alcohol every day could reduce diabetes although I don't deal with gestational diabetes patients and um, <laughs> I know you have to be very careful with uh, suggesting alcohol to people these days. So brilliant. Loads to take home. Thank you so much for your hard work and um, get some rest, folks. Thank you for having me. Thanks. <laughs> See you later. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Alvin Trester, and Dr. Cammy Hirons. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook, and Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves. 